0: Welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Jan Orman. In this podcast series, we invite people we know and admire to tell us their stories. These are people who may not have hit the headlines, but whose stories are just as worthy of our attention as many of those you read and hear about in the media. They're people who have flourished despite, because of, or on the background of issues with their social and emotional well-being. We're hoping you'll find something in these stories to inspire you whatever your situation right now. Every now and again, we'll mention online resources. If you'd like to find out more about those resources, please head to the eMental Health in Practice page of the Black Dog Institute website. There are issues discussed in these podcasts that some people might find distressing. If you do experience distress, please contact your usual support person or lifeline on one three one one. One, four. Today's storyteller is Dr. Molly Shorthouse. Molly is a general practitioner with special training to work in rural and remote regions of Australia. That training includes the unusual circumstances of her childhood. Molly currently works as Director of Medical Services for MiWatch Health in one of the most remote and beautiful parts of Australia. She's got a special interest in mental health and is a tireless advocate for improved mental health care in rural and remote regions of Australia and for the social and emotional well-being of Australia's Indigenous peoples. But there's much more to Molly than her medical career. Molly's life has always been exciting, but it has not always been easy. Beware, the story may well have you laughing and crying as it did me, often at the same time. I'm going to let Molly tell her own story in her own warm way.
1: Uh, So my name's Dr Molly Shorthouse and I am a remote doctor in East Arnhem Land, which is about halfway between Darwin and Cairns. It's a tropical paradise. Our closest tertiary hospital is 700 kilometres away and we are very remote. Uh, The next town, if I wanted to drive, is also about 700 kilometres. I am a rural generalist in mental health. That means that I trained with the Australian College of Rural and Remote Medicine and um, specifically uh, trained in order to be able to work in remote areas. So other than learning primary care and general practice i also learnt uh, some anesthetics and obstetrics and uh, a specialty to be a rural generalist you need to also have a specialty area and prior to joining Acram, i had spent quite some time with the australian college of psychiatry so i had um, about three years training some formal and informal with them and I was in Melbourne and decided that I really wanted to go remote. So that's how I ended up in Arnhem Land. I grew up in a little place called Humpty Doo. Humpty Doo is uh, about 50 kilometres out of Darwin. It's, at the time, was was a pretty much a remote place itself growing up. Mum and Dad started this place called Solar Village. So we run entirely off solar power and we have done since 1976. We It's about um, 320 acres with eight families that were living there and it was quite a, a social enterprise as well as a, an environmental enterprise to start with. There were lots of community meetings and a real sense of um, Living off the grid, I guess. (laughs) So it was a, it was we didn't have a television until I was about fourteen. The house is rammed earth, made from the soil uh, around it. There, there's no locks on doors. It's all lots and lots of fly screen, only minimal walls. Um, So it was a bit like growing up camping. Now, every night you could hear all the little animals outside, and the fresh air of the bush and the smell of the bush. So I had um, a great childhood with an identical twin sister, Alice. Identical twins are a pretty funny relationship in terms of we, you know, you're so close and you you have someone else that pretty much always believes what you believe. (laughs) So so there's sometimes not always this uh, ability to reality check because there's another person who's right there with you. And, um, I remember Alice and I, I think we were about 13, walking along the, um, red dirt of Solar Village and saying, what are we going to do for the environment? The environment is in trouble, you know, and the, the biggest trouble is overpopulation and what can we do? And we went and we sort of lay down in the, it was dry season, so the creek was empty. We've got a lovely creek that runs through the bush. We lay down under these pandanus trees and we were just talking about how can we, uh, How can we help the environment? And we decided that um, we had to basically remove some of the population, the world population. Um, And Alice would be the ethics and moral lawyer side of it and I would be the microbiologist that comes up with the bug. So... It's pretty funny uh, that uh, Alice is now an environmental lawyer, and I've gone way off track, and I'm saving lives. <laughs> it was, and and you know the funny thing is that, as I said, you don't have a lot of reality testing, so Alice and I kept this to ourselves for probably about six months, and then then we decided that we needed to start recruiting um, other assistance other help so we went to little we were at that point at darwin high school public school and we um decided on this uh friend who was very studious and we we could tell would be a very good scientist and and we said would you meet us at lunchtime under the tree and um proceeded to tell her the story (laughs) Of course she went home and told her mother who rang our mother and we were promptly reality checked that that's not really uh, the approach for saving the environment. So I I did go into science and arts initially, Bachelor of Science with Arts down at um, Adelaide University And uh, I had been reading a lot of Oliver Sacks and Steve Pinker um, and fell madly in love with the brain and decided that uh, I was, that was the thing I was most interested in. So I started with some psychology and neurophysiology and neuroanatomy, um, creative writing, linguistics, that sort of combination. And in my second year, I was back in Darwin with family and there was a um, uh, information session on the new graduate entry medical program that Flinders University was running and actually Professor Paul Worley, who's now the National Rural Health Commissioner, had been the impetus in starting that. Uh, there was a Darwin quota, Dad took me along. I said, Dad, I'm not going to be a doctor. No way. <laughs> and he said, Molly, I really think it's a good combination of arts and science and your interest in the brain and I think you should just consider it. And so I looked into it a bit more and decided that actually that wasn't a bad idea and um, finished my undergraduate and got into Flinders University through the Darwin quota, which was um, a huge privilege and I really, I can't say enough how important I think it is to have these quotas for people who are from areas and backgrounds um, that don't have the same high school um, or ed- education possibilities and of course that's including with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people I just, the more quote the more we can let people in um, from different backgrounds and different areas and rural and remote areas, the more we'll have doctors out here. I, I spent uh, a little bit of time in hospitals. Uh, so I did my internship at Royal Hobart Hospital. And then I decided to go and do some locum in and traveling for a couple of years because it had all been study, study, study. And I was doing, I wanted to finish my Bachelor of Arts. So I was doing romanticism and realism. And um, I think I spent too much time in the romanticism area and I thought, no, time to go traveling, Molly. And um, so I did locums all around really Tassie and New South Wales. And then I enrolled to start psychiatry training at the, um, St. Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne. Uh, I was lucky enough to have on the interview question a question um, regarding Shakespeare, and uh, I'd just been doing quite a bit of art, so I could answer that one then. But I, um, I really loved, I loved the training. I loved psychiatry. It was a really, really huge privilege. Um, but like I said, I, I couldn't really cope with the city too well. And I also had met uh, the man that would become my husband that year. It was a it was a interesting experience to then come back and move to East Arnhem Land into one of the most um, probably the one of the communities that was last touched by colonization, the Yungle people are very uh, strong still in their traditional culture. They they didn't really have much experience with missionaries and and white people until you know nineteen twenties and onwards. They in fact might have been a bit later than that. There's many patients I know elders still that can recall not having white people here. Um, and it's, we feel very, very privileged to be able to live here. And, and we've become very close with some of the families in particular. And in fact, most of our social life now is with our Yomu family. It, and we get to go out to their homeland. And uh, that's a good place for recovery for me. I'm now the Director of Medical Services for MEWATCH, which is the Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Service for the region. It's growing rapidly. It started um, in 1992, I believe, with one clinic. Uh, It's undergoing a process called regionalisation, which is where the government is handing back clinics under community control so mewatch now has um three clinics here in the gove peninsula also gallawingu Yurui, and from july we're also looking after Raman Guinea and Gapawiak so it's a it's a big area i think it's an area nearly the size of belgium um its a population probably of around 12 000 to 15000 depending on movements and it's been a really, really eye-opening experience for me going from working for top-end health services, which is government. I spent most of my career here at Gove District Hospital providing emergency medicine and, and ward medicine. And also I had developed a rural generalist mental health clinic. So I was also doing quite a bit of mental health work. But I was working for the government and now with MeWATCH. The bosses are the Yungle community, the Yungle board, and the most of our executive, over 50% of our executive team are Indigenous. Our CEO is um, a Torres Strait Islander man, uh, Eddie Mulholland, who's got an incredible story and very inspirational. So I've I really have a sense now that if you're working in Aboriginal communities, the right thing to do is to work under... Aboriginal governance, I think that's a really important thing because Mewatch's, um, I guess, main strategy or overall belief is that we want to build the capabilities of the Mewatch Marilau, the Yungal people, so they can control their lives and direct their own futures. And control is really one of the most important health benefits that we can add to... uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So that means that they need to be the ones that make the decisions about everything. Before I began training or before I even ended up in East Arnhem Land, I certainly had no mental health experiences. I was, as I mentioned before, I was very lucky because I, I, I grew up with really strong attachment parenting and a good childhood. And so I can take a fairly high level of pressure and I, I started to work at Gove District Hospital where I was doing a lot of shift work. And we were also district medical officer for the region. So I would be taking phone calls from remote clinics and um, having to do that in the middle of the night as well as um, work during the day. Plus taking on the mental health load for the region because there were no, there were no one else there doing actual um, psychological work. We had psychiatrists fly in and out every few months who were wonderful and really supportive. I did, however, start a family up here and I think the combination of um, having children or being very, very pregnant and being in the middle of the night doing resuscitations and on-call and telephone calls and then a lot of mental health work By the time I'd had my second child, I was well and truly burnt out. I didn't recognise it at all at the time. I just had this very strong urge to get out of Ireland, (laughs) to get out of the job. We moved down to Tasmania and it was probably about four months later that my husband said to me, Molly, you are not yourself. What's going on? And uh, convinced me to go and see a GP who was really wonderful and diagnosed that I did I did have a, a postnatal depression, um, which I think was really very much brought down by the level of workload I'd been putting myself under until my second child was born. I I went on antidepressants and only needed them for a few months actually. It was I don't know if it was a strong placebo effect, but I'm I think I it was. It had a very big effect in my husband. Within seven days, said, "Oh, you're already improving." <laughs> so, um, and and I just did what I normally do when I recognise burnout in myself, which is a yoga and meditation. I started yoga first uh, when I was about 19 years old, and since I was 23, I've done a daily practice, and I, I don't think I would have coped with a lot of the pressures I've been under without that. And although I love the quote that someone at a conference recently said, there's no no amount of yoga in the world that can fix a bad job. So <laughs> there's a point where uh, our jobs have to be really, we have to really look at the kind of workloads we put ourselves under too, I think. Um, but more recently, uh, I, so I was very well again for a long time and I, um, Came back to Arnhem Land in 2014 after being in Tasmania for a few few years and had a wonderful time and got some developed some really great friends down there, but uh, realised that there are doctors everywhere in Hobart. We were in Hobart at the time. And I kind of have this, and I still get it when I, even when I look on a Google map and I see medical centre, medical centre, medical centre, (laughs) you know, if I'm looking for a restaurant or something in a city, I have this sort of stab of realisation about how many doctors there are in cities compared to remote areas. So... I had a fortuitous, well, maybe not so. I'm sure it was deliberate from Lucy Walters End, who was the president of ACRAM at the time. She telephoned me when I was in Hobart and I'd submitted uh, my essay or, I guess, paper on the mental health clinic that I had been doing in Arnhem Land, which had quite a lot of case studies in it. And she basically said, what are you doing in Hobart? Go back to Bartham Land. <laughs> in the nicest possible way, in a non-directive way. So I immediately said to my husband, we're going back. Let's do it. And we were really excited. And the boys were excited. My boys are uh, remote kids. One of them says that he will never live in a city that has is big enough to require traffic light. <laughs> so we'll be in a bit of a... Uh, Yeah, that's going to be tough, that one. We had uh, kept uh, very close with our uh, Jungle family connections and, in fact, we had a few of them come and stay with us at our place in Bay of Fires, northeast Tasmania. So we had kept those connections and we often spoke about how much we missed um, the Jungle families and the place a lot. And then... um, Again, actually, my you know, my husband's got a very high emotional intelligence, and he he was the one who who again said, "Molly, I don't think this is working for you, and it's not working for the kids, and it's consequently not working for me." And um, let's let's talk about this. And he sort of turned the computer around and showed me this job position, which was um, for director of medical services at MeWATCH in East Dunedin. And uh, my first reaction was, "God, I can't do that. I'm, I'm just a doctor. I'm not a director." And he said, "Don't be silly. Of course you can. You can do anything." Um, so I rang some of my young uh, friends and and spoke to them about it and asked them what they thought. And they were one of them is a wonderful woman called Melanie Herdman, and I and she said, "Go for it." So I thought, "Okay, <laughs> I'll go for it." I had another uh, mental health experience earlier this year which was very different to the first time and and I can pretty safely say that this time the people that, the system that healed me and the people that healed me was um, our Jungo family and Jungo healing. I was on holiday in Bali, it was Boxing Day This was the first family holiday, like proper holiday for a few years and I was just sitting there, sun was setting over the beach and thinking, wow, this is just going to be such a great couple of weeks. We'd ordered our nasi garang and, and then the sun was just dipping below the horizon and someone yelled out, call an ambulance, call an ambulance. And... I looked down the beach and saw uh, some shadows and and someone lying there and I said to Harry, keep the boys up here, I'll go down. I went down and there was a man doing um, compressions on a, a young man, probably about 30, who had drowned. And the man doing compressions said, can you do airway? Um, I'm a cardiologist I said yeah sure I'm a remote doctor I'll do airway Um, he it was uh, I mean I know everyone knows that you can just do compressions for cardiac arrest but you have to get oxygen into drowning it's not something that you really have a choice about with airway so I started doing mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and uh, you know there was Salt water and vomit and rice coming into my mouth from his, um, you know, dental hygiene was terrible. Every time we, we, every now and then, we had to tip him to get the salt water out of his lungs. And then his wife and four-year-old came running up the beach and plonked down next to me, and crying and screaming. And the little girl was saying, "Doctor will save dad. Doctor will save dad." We spent about fifty-five minutes doing resuscitation. Uh, we managed to get an AED from the surf club, which we had to break open because it was so rusted; it had never been used. Um, we did everything we could, but we we didn't stop until we got the got him onto the stretcher and into an ambulance. The reality is this. On reflection, there's no way that he would have survived. There was a systole each time we measured the AED and I found out later that he'd been pulled from quite deep in the water so he had probably been drowned for some time. But obviously at the time, you don't know this and all you can do is your best. And so I walked back up to my kids and husband covered in mud and (laughs) from the beach and salt water and just said, can we go home now? And we went back to the villa and I I uh, had a strong tequila <laughs> and sat outside and felt a bit numb, went to bed as soon as I could and woke up the next morning with this very loud voice in my head, this song. I'm not someone that gets songs in my head because I've got absolutely no musical ability and uh, I've never had a song in my head but this was a really really loud song and I thought it was behind me and I sort of sat upright suddenly and the song was um hello from the other side hello from the other side that Adele song (laughs) so I was a little bit freaked out by that jumped up and told my husband and sort of got on with things and he said, oh, why don't you go and have a healing massage today, Molly? Go. And I said, yeah, that's a really good idea. I'm feeling pretty strange. And so I went and had a massage and about halfway through that massage I sat up and started vomiting salt water and fried rice and, of course, I wasn't. I just came to the realisation this poor massage therapist had jumped back and was watching me and I was just kind of um, – obviously looked pretty terrified first <laughs> to her, I said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I lay down again and let her finish. Um, and then I kind of fell apart in on the holiday and I was having sort of PTSD symptoms. I would be, would be at a restaurant and there would be a way to, you know, to on the other side of the table that had the same oral hygiene smell, you know, that that smell when you haven't flossed your teeth for too long Um, and it would set me off into a panic attack and I hadn't never experienced any of these sorts of things before. I think my guard was down. I think that resuscitations at work and in the hospital, you put into that little work box in your brain and you, you try to keep it there and I was, I was relaxed and I was on holiday. I didn't have a little workbox, And I think obviously it's, there's a lot more sort of full on sensory experiences in first response resuscitations compared to in the hospital environment. And that really affected me. So I, um, I had to stay a little bit longer in Bali. Um, I couldn't even get on the plane to come home, and I knew that I wasn't even safe to be at work the way I was. I very quickly saw a Balinese GP who, who actually was really impressive and so sensitive in terms of mental health capacity. And I started um, on fluoxetine, which was probably a bit rash. <laughs> I just wanted to get better fast, and I didn't know what was happening. So anyway, I came back, and I was not too bad, but. Not hundred percent not not at all and I grappled with whether or not I'd tell the Mewatch staff especially all the doctors that work with me about why I had been a week away sick an extra week on top of the holidays and I thought if I don't tell them this and I just I'm um, I don't everything I believe in you know I'm a I'm a coward I have been telling people for years to speak openly about their mental illness, and to speak openly about what happens, and not to feel ashamed or afraid of it, because it happens to all of us at some point. So I did. I I told them a little, some of it in an email, and then face to face about what had happened to me, um, but that I was improving, and I would sought treatment, and um, they were, everyone was as accepting about it which is great um and then I I just still wasn't feeling right and I knew that I knew that there was still something really not quite right within me and I couldn't I couldn't uh, put a finger on it I know you're not meant to (laughs) self-diagnose so I I did I did see a great GP and, and you know she said oh look it does sound a bit like PTSD but it's it's not quite either and I um I did arrange to start um, talking to someone and then that weekend we went to the homeland of the family, of the Yungle family that we've become very close to. And I was sitting there, there were about, probably about, there was my husband and I and probably about eight of our Yungle family all sitting around under the tree on this beautiful beach and uh, one of the traditional owners or the older uh younger men walked in and he took one look at me and said, Molly, are you okay? The are you okay from a young old person is a very profound thing really. And especially because I thought I had my mask on and that I was still tricking everyone <laughs> that I was okay. Um, and I guess because of the company I was in and I just said, no, no, I'm not. I feel haunted. And he said to me, it's a Macassan spirit. And he didn't know that I'd been in Bali and that kind of floored me a bit. And then he just started speaking in Yungo Mata to the family and, gathered everyone around, arranged everyone and said, we're doing a healing ceremony for you right now. And he asked Ari and the kids to go fishing to give us that space. And they all went around and gathered the the leaves and and what was needed and they started a little fire. And they set me up, sitting, looking out at the water um, where there's a crocodile called Nike. He is there, they looked after him in the sort of kitchen sink as a baby and so he's kind of the pet crocodile for the homeland. He gets a shower from them with the hose and he gets fish that's left over and he's, a, he's now a very big crocodile but he is very much a presence of that place. <laughs> and I was sitting there looking at this beautiful Baru crocodile and um, they began and it involved um, having the women putting these healing leaves and massage and and the men singing um, a, a particular song and the yadaki being played. And uh, while I was sitting there, Nike split into four. There were four Nikes. And I had this very medical model mind thinking, okay, so why have I got diplopia? No, this is more than diplopia. What's going on here? Is there some sort of side effect of bloody the medication I was on <laughs> or what's going on um but then he came back I, I, I tested it actually and I checked and no one else was for only Nike was but they continued to sing and they continued the process and the it was probably I don't know 30 minutes 40 minutes and Nike came back into one right at the end and they finished and of course I felt that feeling that cared for is, is a beautiful thing. And I, I had a shower and actually, no, I didn't. I think I left the leaves on me as long as possible. <laughs> um, and I woke up the next day feeling a little bit better. I woke up the next two days feeling a lot better. By the time I saw my mum and dad again, over in Humpty Jew only one week later, I was sitting there at dinner and Dad said, Molly, you are a different person to last week. What has happened? And I said, the only thing that's happened is this ceremony at Pawaka. So it was a pretty amazing experience and I I have so much respect for this culture and their healing ways and I really hope that in my current position I can bring bring the resources that are needed for their healing
0: processes.
1: I do believe that we really need to give Rural Generalists in Mental Health the same recognition and support as we do for GP anesthetics and obstetrics. And I I think that comes from first, you know, the financial support for upskilling that obstetrics and anesthetics get. It comes from um, increasing the amount of training that all primary care physicians or clinicians in rural remote areas have. And I think also, obviously, getting as many aboriginal and torres strait islander people through the medical schools as we possibly can and supporting them to do it because it's a it was a really tough gig for me as a hump dido girl um that you know you just we don't have the same opportunities necessarily now in our primary and secondary education so giving people the giving aboriginal and torres strait islander people the chance to become doctors and nurses and mental health practitioners is just the most important. I I do spend a lot of time still, a lot of my spare time in the advocacy space. So I'm um, on, on a couple of boards and um, trying to increase awareness about what's going on in remote areas. And as, you know, that, that really the thing that's killing people is suicide and it's not just the thing that's killing people. There's also the morbidity of of the the immense level of distress in our region. And as I just I just want to see a genuine treaty. I just want to see a genuine respect that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people will make their own plans and their own decisions at a very high political level. And it's it's yeah, I think that, that, that people underestimate how much that of a great effect that will have
0: in communities. Thank you for listening. If there's been anything in this podcast that you've found distressing, don't forget to contact your usual support person or you can call Lifeline on one three one 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 four. 14. And if you'd like to hear more in the Being Well podcast series, you can find it on the Black Dog Institute website. Mm-hmm.